Happy Thursday, everybody, and ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Welcome to episode 64 of the Snyder Cut. I am Collider's senior film reporter, Jeff Snyder, and we've got a good show this week. It's, you know, there, there hasn't been that much news. Hollywood sort of packs it in as early as they can. I think they took off last Thursday or Friday. Uh, so it's been it's been a quiet week, relative, but we've still got plenty to talk about. And let's kick it off with a review of WW84, aka Wonder Woman 1984. Whoa! So this kind of this I would say this this sequel lived up to the hype, which was not good. Um, I don't think that this movie was horrifically bad, but it's definitely not good. Like there. There's some good stuff in there. I liked the opening with like, you know, child Diane. Well, I guess I, I don't want to get into spoilers here. You guys haven't really seen it yet. Um, okay. Well, there's a, there's a sequence at the beginning set in Wonder Woman's Amazonian homeland that I thought was good. And there's the mall scene that we've seen, you know, excerpted in the trailers and stuff. Then the movie got off to a decent start. It, it took a while though. Like th- those are like two, like, most 15 minute set pieces that don't really have much to do with the plot. Um, we do see the invisible jet, you know, I, I don't know if that's a big spoiler. That's sort of been out there. And I, and I, I didn't mind that scene. Like I also, it could, it could have easily been left on the cutting room floor, but you know, it features Diana and Steve Trevor sort of uh, flying through a fireworks display. And there were some nice shots in here, you know, like capturing what a firework might look like from above the clouds. Um, so I, you know, and, and then there's a big sort of twist of sorts to the ending, which I will not give away obviously, um, but I liked that moment. I liked some of the points and ideas that this movie was grappling with. However, it was way too long. I mean, this movie's two and a half hours. There's just no need for it. Uh, the script was a disaster. I don't know who it's credited to, but like who comes up with this crap? It was bad. It was a bad script. Patty Jenkins, I, I mean, you know, naturally she gets Star Wars off this thing, right? Like it, it's nice to see that Patty Jenkins can fail upwards just like any white male director. Uh, because this is just a real step backwards. Like, it does feel at times like a movie made by people who didn't really understand why people liked the first film. I thought that the tone of Wonder Woman 84 was kind of all over the place. Like there are moments where it feels like it's for 10 or 12 year old girls. And then there are like these kind of much more adult moments, uh, you know, where Kristen Wiig is like, kicking the teeth out of a guy who cat calls her. Uh, and like, I, I understand what this movie was trying to say about that kind of stuff and, and the me too of it all. And, you know, no means no. Uh, it just felt just to not mesh with the rest of the tone. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't, I can't really take Kristen Wiig terribly seriously as a dramatic actress. I'm not saying that she's bad in everything that she does. I really like Skeleton Twins. She's okay in in, in The Martian, but uh, it just, everything feels like she's in like a sketch. Like this movie, her character felt like she was playing her character from Ghostbusters. Um, And by the end, when she does turn into the cheetah, which takes way too long, by the way, like you really only see her as the cheetah in one scene. For the most part, uh, it was terrible, like terrible CGI. I don't know what they were going for with this design. This movie is a mess. I don't want to say it's like, it, I wasn't sitting there being like, what the, f-? like, well, I guess I was, but I wasn't sitting there like I was with Birds of Prey and Suicide Squad, where I was just like, this is just horrible from execution on down or, you know, from, from conception to execution. Um, I don't think Wonder Woman 84 was as bad as either of those two movies, but it's definitely just one s- small notch above them. Um, yeah, pretty, di- pretty disappointing stuff. 
And the end of the movie, I mean, you know, it, there's like this final sort of scene. By the way, everything that they, they do to get Chris Pine back in this movie is so stupid. It makes no sense. The whole movie doesn't really make any sense. It's all about like wishes. I mean, what is this, Aladdin? Like, was this like part of the Wonder Woman comics? I have no idea. Um, Pedro Pascal is in like a different movie. Uh, his villain, like these villains, these may be the worst villains I've seen in a comic book movie, maybe ever. That's how bad they were. And, and that does mean like, because Ewan McGregor in Birds of Prey was way better than the, than the villains Wonder Woman 84 gets. I suppose Enchantress was pretty bad in Suicide Squad, but this is, this just does not work. I felt like Pedro Pascal was sort of doing like this Trump thing and you know, like imagining what Trump was like in the eighties or something. Um, I, I don't really know what to say about this movie other than I, like what, when, when the reviews first hit, right. You know, and, and all the, the, the fanboy friendly critics get an early look at this. Like, what movie did they see? Uh, you just can't trust these people. It doesn't matter what they say. I think I, I and these people are my friends. You know, like, I, I like a lot of them. But do I respect them as critics? That's another story entirely. Who I mean, who, the people making excuses for this film, they should have their credit card just revoked. That's what I loved about, about Frosty's reaction. If you guys read Frosty's reaction uh, to Wonder Woman 84, it was like, well, it was great to be back in an IMAX movie theater again. <laughs> Just totally going right, right over the movie. Um, yeah, th this is another disappointing entry for the, for the DCU. Uh, I mean, will there be a Wonder Woman 3? I don't even know at this point. I mean, that's how bad this movie is. And with Patty Jenkins moving on to Star Wars, like, it's not like you're going to, I don't think you can even get her back for this. I just, no. Mm -mm. Nope. Um, let's just move on. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, okay, last night, the Hollywood Reporter dropped a fascinating story. Fascinating. Okay, this is a movie in and of itself. Netflix got this big Chinese book or, you know, whatever, the, the three-body problem, right? It was originally optioned to require whatever by some Chinese companies, and then Netflix took it off their hands. So it turns out that this week, the China executive at Netflix, right, who's working on this three-body problem movie with uh, Benioff and Weiss, the Game of Thrones guys, he got poisoned, and they suspect a rival film executive from the place that had to give up the rights, which is crazy. Sorry, I, I, I kicked the table there and, and, and the camera started shaking. That's crazy. Like, can, this is like Warner Brothers winning a bidding war for like a big property and Paramount like thinking that it had it and Paramount's executive like, hey, well, you know, let's get, let's have lunch. I have some ideas, you know, you guys may want to do uh, for this movie that you just acquired, and then poisoning the Warner Brothers executive. It's like, I'm surprised you actually don't see more of it. I mean, I know I'm the type who gets very invested in like the scoops that I chase. I feel like some sense of ownership over the story. Uh, and so when I get scooped, you know, I, I feel like that's that's my baby. Like, oh, I have that on my screen. screen. Like, I, I pre-wrote this story last week. I can't, like, that is one thing. I've always wanted to be an executive. But I don't know that I could handle being an executive and losing out on these properties, you know, especially after putting in months of courtship to get the rights or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, that's got to be tough. And so the idea that one executive poisoned another, seemingly in retaliation, I mean, it's not like he's going to like poison this executive and somehow get on the project or, get, or you know, what is he angling for to, to take this guy's job at Netflix? It's wild. Go over to the Hollywood Reporter and check this story out. I, I've been meaning to update it because when I, when I read it, it was only like a few paragraphs with a more to come. Um, mind blowing. Uh, speaking of mind blowing, the, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, wh why are we paying attention to them? Why do we give them power? over us. I don't understand it. 
So this week, uh, it has been revealed that Minari, from Lee Isaac Chung, an American filmmaker, paid for by an American studio featuring American actors, barred from Best Picture, barred from competing in Best Picture at the Golden Globes. Why? Because uh, I think that the rule is that it has to be 50% or more than 50% English, whereas this film is mostly in Korean. Um, I mean, there's still a fair amount of English in Minari, but obviously it's dominant language is Korean. But so, so like, I don't understand. Like, uh, speaking another language in America doesn't make you foreign. I mean, there's a, like, America is a melting pot. We got to get past this where, like, only English language movies are considered American films. Like, what? Uh, people speak Korean here. They speak Spanish. They, they speak hundreds of languages here in America, and it doesn't make them any less American. So this is one awards controversy. I have to throw my, my, my weights behind. I, I do have considerable weights, physical weight. I don't know if I have any weight in this industry. Uh, but some, you know, some heavy hitters did uh, let, lend their support to, to Minari. I, I just, you know, from my perspective, I, why are we still pretending the HFPA is a thing? Why? Because they have a TV deal with NBC? Can't the, I mean, I hate the Critics' Choice Awards. The critics probably have worse taste than the HFPA sometimes, okay? But, like, can't the, the Critics' Choice Awards just get a TV deal? And that can become, like, the new Golden Globes? Why do we put stock in the Golden Globes? Who are these 75, 80 foreign journalists? Like, I don't, none of them are like respected critics. Maybe in their home countries, people read them, you know? Like, I, I understand that. But like, in America, and I get this is the, the foreign press and, and, you know, we do need this group of people to, because Hollywood is, is America's greatest export, right? Movies, entertainment. That is what America's sort of contribution is to the world. And so you do need foreign journalists to spread that message. Like, you know, I'm not saying that foreign journalists are not an important part of the equation, but why do we give them so much power and only 80 people to, to as like this first major stop on, on the awards season trail? Like it just, it makes no sense. And like everyone can act tough, right? When it comes to the HFPA and, and, and tweet things out but like how many of them are actually stopping attending the Globes? They're not going to support the Globes. They're not going to promote the Globes. Like that is when I'll see that Hollywood takes this stuff seriously. Sending out a tweet condemning the HFPA, like anybody can do that. It's all about action. So, you know, I completely agree with what Lulu Wong said and a whole lot of other people, but you know, if next year Lulu Wong is at the Globes, right? For her movie or, or just in the audience, then, then what is the point? Uh, I, I just don't understand why the industry gives this organization a certain amount of power and is then surprised when they use it for evil. Not that this is evil, I mean, we're just talking about awards here, but Minari. I mean, she, she was right. Like, it, it is absolutely one of the most American films of the year. It's about, it's like explicitly about the American dream. It's set in friggin' Arkansas. Like, does it get more American than Arkansas? Like, what? Oh, the HFPA. You, you, you gotta love them. They give them something to, to scream about every season without fail. Um, they also flipped a bunch of, like, different categorizations, I think. I think all the people from One Night in Miami are going to compete in one category. It hasn't been decided which lead or supporting. I don't, ha I don't understand how you have four lead actors. So uh, you're probably going to have to go every everybody in supporting for that, I would imagine. Um, and, and, and I feel like best actor is crowded. Best supporting actor, there's actually a little bit of room this year. Uh, I just... You know, I'm, I'm, I'll be very curious to see how many of the, the Chicago 7 people hang on for nominations at the Oscars because it seems like just losing losing some steam. Like, everyone can sort of acknowledge that, that all of them were, like, pretty good. I just don't know, like, who is passionate about them. Like, when you ask, hey, what was the best supporting performance you saw this year? A lot of people will say, you know, Chadwick or, or uh, Paul Racy in Sound of Metal. Like, who is saying Sasha Baron Cohen in, in Chicago 7 or Mark Rylance? 
Um, they also flipped Promising Young Woman, I believe, from comedy to drama. That's just a no-brainer. I mean, Promising Young Woman, there, there are, you know, there's some dark humor in there. It is funny. Um, but, but a comedy is a stretch, you know, like that, 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 that belongs in drama. And, and I'm glad that, that, that switch was made, uh, elsewhere in award stuff, you know, due to the Shia LaBeouf of, of it all, it sounds like Netflix just removed him from all its FYC materials for pieces of a woman. I think I said last week, I was surprised that that movie is still coming out. I might have considered delaying it. Um, particularly because Vanessa Kirby isn't necessarily some like slam dunk for a nomination. Like if she was, I would understand, like we got to put this out. Um, maybe it's a contractual thing. I just, I might've held that a little bit longer. Um, but either way, yeah, it doesn't sound like Shia is, I mean, Shia was never really supposed to get a, a ton of love for that, but he, he's definitely not going to anymore. Variety had an interesting piece about, um, you know, Shia and, and the, the, the fate of his career after these allegations and whatnot. I mean, they're not even allegations. I mean, he, I mean, see, he did say some things were not true, but he admitted to being abusive. Um, but it said that he was fired. Yeah. I mean, you know, from, from, from don't worry, darling, which just goes to show you guys, it's another example. Of, I think of the mailbag question from last week or two weeks ago, when, when someone says scheduling issues, it's very rarely scheduling issues. These people know their schedules. It's not like, Oh, I signed on to this movie. I totally forgot. I was supposed to do another one that same week. You know, it's usually a lot more complicated than that. And so it sounds like, I mean, I don't know if Olivia knew about this FK Twigs thing or not, but it sounds like Shia was not getting along, like their styles were clashing. He wasn't getting along with the people in, during pre-production or whatever. I mean, he was fired before shooting. Um, so yeah, they replaced him with, with Harry Styles. Uh, but it, it was interesting to see Variety kind of get to the bottom of that, or unless that's sort of, you know, just spin like, oh, oh we, we even fired him before that. Um, the other thing that the Variety mentioned in, in its reports, and I didn't realize was already out there, I guess uh, Daniel RPK, Dan, Dan Rickman put this out there, um, but I had heard something similar, that Shia was in fact being eyed for the X-Men. So what I had heard, and, and I know uh, Daniel said Iceman, and, and that is what I had heard. I'd heard Iceman. Um, I'd also heard Wolverine. So, because I've always thought Shia would be a great Wolverine. Wolverine is not supposed to be like this massive, hulking, Hugh Jackman kind of guy. Not that Hugh Jackman's like gigantic or anything, but he was like always this scrappy little guy, right? That's why I always said Shia or Barry Cogan. And Ben, you know, <laughs> frankly, I think Barry Cogan has had similar issues to Shia. But uh, so I had heard that, that they wanted Shia as Wolverine, but because of everything that Shia has been through and he's always in the news and, you know, getting drunk or whatever it is, he was seen as a bit of a liability. Like they didn't want to build this whole X-Men franchise around Shia LaBeouf and make him the signature character Wolverine. And so they said, well, what about Iceman? That's what I had heard. Um, you know, I don't know how much truth there is to the Wolverine stuff because, you know, clearly they had some some reservations. Like I, I don't understand the they wanted him, but they also were wary of him. Um, but yeah, the, the Iceman thing I think was real. I don't know that Shia ever would have actually gone for that character. I think if Shia was going to do this franchise, he he would want something a little bit better than Iceman. Uh, I don't know. Like is that was that a big character in the X Men? I, I kind of. All these, you know, Frozone and the Incredibles, Iceman, they all do the same shit. Like, it's not terribly exciting power to have. Uh, anyways, we can move along from Shia LaBeouf. Let's talk about David Gordon Green. This guy, like, man. Uh, I watched, I rewatched Goat last night. I showed it to Dad and his girlfriend. Uh, David Gordon Green was originally supposed to direct that movie. He wound up simply producing. Really, really good movie. I thought if you have, if you never heard of goat, uh, check it out. I think it's like 74, 75% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, anyways, David Gordon Green, this guy's like all over the place. Like he can kind of do anything. He can do Pineapple Express comedy. He can do stronger drama and he can do, uh, obviously, you know, the, Hall the Halloween movies for Blumhouse. For, uh, Blumhouse. So anyways, and this story has been in the works for a little while from what I understand. Um, but yeah, so Blumhouse is mounting this exorcist 
sequel. I don't know if it will be like a legacy sequel that brings back Linda Blair or Ellen Burst. I mean, I don't even know, you know, I don't know where we are in the franchise. I don't even know if I ever saw Exorcist 2. I saw the first Exorcist, obviously, and I actually really like Exorcist 3. I don't remember, I don't know if I ever saw two. So I don't know if Linda Blair or Ellen Burstyn survive or, or whatever the hell is going on there. But um, I mean, it is a franchise that has sort of just been very dormant. I think that, you know, given what Blumhouse has done with, with Halloween and, and what Jordan Peele's doing with Candyman, we've seen, you know, Child's Play. There's been a lot of rumors about Jason, like what's going on with him lately. Like, uh, it's probably a good move for Blumhouse to, to go back to the Exorcist well with Morgan Freak, uh, Morgan Freak, Morgan Creek, <laughs> which controlled the rights, I believe. Um, David Gordon Green, like, I was a little surprised because, you know, he's out, he did Halloween. He's got the two Halloween sequels coming out. Like, is this really what he wants to go right into? I have a feeling that he will do something else in between. I don't think Exorcist is on the fast track at all. I think this is like an, uh, an early development project. They got to take their time getting this one right because you can't, you can't just keep churning out terrible, uh, you know, Exorcist sequels and reboots. Like, this franchise has been hurt enough. Isn't David Gordon Green involved in, in the Hellraiser TV show? Like, he's, I don't know if he's just cashing in on the horror craze or if he, like, genuinely has affection for it. Because I don't remember, you know, reading the early interviews with David Gordon Green, you know, for movies like George Washington or All the Real Girls or Snow Angels. Like, I don't remember him being some big horror buff. Um, but maybe he just sort of, fell in love with it recently i don't know i i tend to find that you know among horror buffs or among movie buffs horror is sort of the the gateway drug it's the entryway for them um i guess you know listen we could do worse we could do a lot worse as far as exorcist directors go uh he doesn't have a deal yet he's just in talks um he, he could very well just end up producing alongside blumhouse or something like that but uh i don't know I guess I'm mixed on that. Like, part of me wants to see other stuff from David Gordon Green once he wraps the Halloween trilogy. But then again, that first movie was really good, and I've heard I've heard actually good things about Halloween Kills. So, more power to him, you know? Plan B this week, Brad Pitt's company signed a second look deal at with MGM. It has a first look deal at Warner Brothers. I thought that was kind of interesting. You don't see a lot of second look deals announced in the press. I don't know if this was just like, I don't know if these announcements with MGM is just MGM trying to make itself look good on paper for investors. Like all these movies that MGM has put in the pipeline, whether it's Gucci or, or uh, you know, the Project Hail Mary with Ryan Gosling from Lord and Miller. Like, are all these movies, are they actually going to get made in MGM? Or is it just like, all right, now we have all these sort of A-list elements and the, these packages in development. And, you know, we, we look good on paper for a sale because you're getting all these sort of high-profile projects if, if you were to buy us. You know, if Apple were to come in and buy MGM, now they have a Gucci movie with Lady Gaga. And they have, you know, uh, the... the the Ryan Gosling astronaut movie. Like, I just, is MGM for real? Because I'm confused. They definitely, uh, they definitely seem to be having some money issues because um, they did retain two different like banks to, to explore the possibility of a sale. I don't really know why that was big news this week because it seems like since I got to Hollywood, MGM has been up for sale. Like they've always had financial difficulties. I, I, I feel like, we, you know, the, the Apple rumors have been around forever. I guess it's now just a formal thing that we've actually hired people to explore a possibility of a sale. My, my theory on the whole thing is that MGM's Kevin Ulick, or however you pronounce his name, you know, he was in the, uh, the press recently because he, he had, you know, done some shady shit like all these guys really do. Allegedly. And... Uh, <laughs> And he settled or whatever, and, and it was like, you know, a sealed document or deposition. I don't know what the fuck it is. But the fact that it existed was in the press. Like, Variety got a hold of it somehow. I think it was Gene Maddow over there who's a really good reporter. Uh, and so I wonder if this guy, Kevin, was just like, 
you know, I got into this business. I'm a, I'm a hedge fund guy. I have all the money I could want in the world. I got into Hollywood. So that, it's not about the art. It's not about making movies. It's about rubbing shoulders with the stars, isn't it? Isn't that what it always is for all these guys? Hollywood is a terrible business. Like if you wanted to make money, Hollywood should be the last place that you're investing your dollars. But if you want to, you know, look cool and, and go to cool parties and hang out with big celebrities, yeah, you, you put your money into Hollywood. And it just feels like this guy, Kevin, was like, all right, I got into this business to do just that. And now the, the town is shut down. I'm not hanging out with movie stars. I'm not going to these, these school parties. And all I'm doing is having my name dragged through the press. Whereas if I was just the head of a hedge fund, Variety wouldn't care about my, my depositions, my legal troubles or whatever, because I'm the head of a studio, they care. So he's, I bet he's just like washing his hands. Like, I don't need this aggravation. Um, particularly, you know, it's like you think that you're, you're in control of Bond and then you, you realize, no, I can't even do what I want with Bond. I could have made, could have fucking licensed this movie to Apple for $600 million or something, but Barbara Broccoli won't let me, you know? I, I just, I, I sense a lot of frustration from Kevin and I wouldn't be surprised if that sale happens in the next like six months or so. They'll probably wait until after Bond and, and see how that does, whether they have to push it again or whether they release it in theaters and, and see how it performs. But uh, I would say by this time next year, MGM is bought and sold. Um, the Electric State, the Russo brothers teaming with Minnie Brown. Come on down. This is Universal won this package. And the Russos had been uh, developing this as producers for several years. Andy Machete was going to direct and produce with uh, Barbara. And it sounds like he's just too busy with The Flash. And so the Russos, I mean, they, they are currently filming Gray Man now. They did have to pause for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, due to some uh, COVID spikes and, and outbreaks or whatever. But it sounds like this is going to be the Russo Brothers' next movie. They've got, they've already got Cherry coming out in February and March on Apple. Gray Man is shooting now. Maybe that'll be out by the end of next year, uh, by the end of 2021 on Netflix. And then The Electric State, which sounds interesting. It's, it's like a, a robot movie. And, and so imagine E.T. if E.T. was a robot and Millie Bobby Brown befriends this robot and then realizes that her missing brother actually sent this robot, so they've got to go, you know, on a journey to, to find her brother or whatever. Um, yeah, I can totally see that being a gigantic hit. The Russos, Millie Bobby Brown, it seems like a smart pairing. Um, and, it's, and it's theatrical, you know? Like, that's nice to see that we are sort of getting back to this place where, okay, you know, if I'm shooting a movie right now, it's for streaming, right? The next year, year and a half, that's streaming. But let's start making plans for three, four years from now, where we get people back in theaters and we focus on, on some theatrical product. Uh, Frances McDormand and Sarah Polly teaming up for Women Talking. That sounded kind of interesting. I mean, they're, they're an interesting pairing. Like, I really do respect Sarah Polly as a director. Um, and Frances McDormand is, you know, one of the greatest actresses alive right now. She may be like the greatest. She's just, certainly in the top five, she could very well win her third Oscar. Like, does Meryl Streep even have three Oscars? I don't even, I've lost track with Meryl Streep. Um, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting race between Frances McDormand, Carrie Mulligan, uh, and Viola Davis for, for Best Actress. But anyways, women talking, Fran and, and Sarah, I, I will definitely check that out. We had some minor casting news and stuff this week. Dwight Yoakam in Crime Macho, uh, Clint Eastwood's movie. I always find him to be an interesting on-screen presence, Dwight Yoakam. And then Julia Butters and Wagner Mora in The Gray Man. Julia Butters, I've been waiting for somebody to snap her up. She was the little girl in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And naturally, the Russos got their hands on her. And then Wagner Mora is, is just a, a fantastic uh, actor who played Pablo Escobar in Narcos. Um, Blumhouse, speaking of Blumhouse with the, with the Exorcist stuff, they won a huge bidding war for this New York Times article about the Mexican mom who was trying to find her, her missing daughter. And so she tracked down like the, the, the kidnappers or whatever, one by one and like held a gun on them and used all these various disguises. It sounded absolutely fascinating. Everybody was sort of chomping at the bit for this thing. And yet Blumhouse was the one who got it. And I'm not sure 
forget the article if they if they're developing a movie or if it's a TV series. I, I would imagine a TV series. Blumhouse actually has a pretty good track record when it comes to TV. Uh, they did, you know, the loudest voice, which I thought was excellent on Showtime. They did good, good Lord, uh, the Good Lord Bird. They did Sharp Objects. So like Blumhouse TV, he, he's definitely built that company, um, that TV arm of the company, into a real powerhouse. Uh, Deadline profile John Lee Hancock, who we're going to we're that we're going to talk about his movie shortly. Sorry, let me just. Um, and in the bottom of that story, if you notice, it said that he is working with Apple and Skydance, developing a show that's loosely based on the musical Oklahoma. Now, I'm not terribly familiar with Oklahoma, which may be why I couldn't stand Charlie Kaufman's uh, thinking of ending things earlier this year. Um, but that was a nice little news nugget that, that Fleming slipped into that interview. Uh, Bono, Pharrell Williams, and Halsey joining Sing 2. I probably will not see Sing 2. I mean, it's definitely, you know, for kids. Um, that first movie, that was okay. If, if that movie had been a little bit better, I'd probably be in for this sequel. But I, I know what we're getting at this point. Like, yeah, this is kitty stuff. Warner Brothers finally announced that Judas and the Black Messiah will hit theaters and HBO Max in February. So it is going to be a part of the current award season. Uh, very curious whether this is going to be a contender or not. I think the movie's amazing. Or, sorry, I think the movie looks amazing. It was number two on my best trailers of the year list, and we're going to get into that shortly. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I just want to see Daniel Kaluuya and, and Lakeith Stanfield, like, squaring off against each other. These guys could both find themselves in the race, although I, I, I thought it was interesting. I did read this week that Lakeith Stanfield is the lead. And Daniel Kaluuya, who I thought was, you know, I thought Fred Hampton was kind of the main character here. I think he is actually going to be positioned in the supporting category. That is interesting. Uh, Trey Edward Schultz, the director of Waves and Cresha, he set up an HBO limited series thriller called Cut Block. I think that he is a guy who you have to pay attention to. And him working with HBO is definitely an exciting, uh, intriguing development. Uh, Mad Max. Furiosa, that's right. The Mad Max Fury Road prequel Furiosa will hit theaters on June 23rd, 2023, while the Color Purple musical will debut on, in December 2023. These announcements, uh, these announcements were notable just because they sort of reiterated Warner Brothers' commitment to theatrical. There was no mention of you know, HBO Max. That was a one-year deal. And I, you know, I understand people are like, well, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you've trained consumers to expect a, you know, a certain thing, a certain way, like this content delivery system at home, then that's what they're going to expect going forward. I don't, know, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think people are like very much aware that we are in the middle of a pandemic. There's no you know, vaccine that has been you know, made available to the general public uh, yet. And we just don't know when people are going to return to theaters. So... Yeah, for this year, the slate's going to HBO Max, but going forward, yeah, Warner Brothers is committed to theatrical, and I think that, you know, the Furiosa date definitely shows that. Um, what else? Oscar predictions. Where, where, where are we in the race? Like, what do we think is going to win? I, I don't know that we've seen all the movies yet. That's the thing. Like, when they dated Judas and the Black Messiah, that, to me, is like a new... Not front runner necessarily, not until at least that somebody sees it, but that could be like a, a 10 nomination movie. I don't know. So I'm just waiting to see if something can crack the race. I, I do think that Breaking News in Yuba County is a title just to, to keep in mind. Um, I don't know what the tone of that will be or, or if that is being positioned as more of a commercial thing or prestige thing, but that that is one uh February movie that you know could, could bust into the race somehow. There's also the the United States versus Billy Holiday one from uh, I think from Lee Daniels. Is that from Lee Daniels? I forget. Um, geez. Okay. So wait, what else? We got Chadwick Boseman right for *The Five Bloods* versus Paul Racy for *Sound of Metal*, and that's in the supporting category. I just you know I'd I'd be fine with Chadwick winning Best Actor 
for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I don't think that he like he was great. Like, and I think I said last week, like I didn't know if that was just sort of buzz because you know he passed away, and 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 so people wanted to give him an Oscar posthumously or something. Like, no, that performance is really good. Like, he I don't know if he's better than Riz Ahmed in, in Sound of Metal, but it wouldn't be like the least deserving nomination or win ever. That's for sure. However, Chadwick winning for the five bloods, best supporting actor. You're telling me this guy was better than Paul Racy in sound of metal. That's crazy. Like he was fine in the five bloods. He didn't do anything particularly special. in, in my eyes, I just, I think Chadwick, I think Chadwick would be better served if everybody sort of got behind one performance, I think that performance is very clearly his work in, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, I mean, otherwise, yeah, I think, I think it is him versus Riz. Maybe Anthony Hopkins breaks into that. You know, I haven't seen The Father yet, so it's tough to talk about his, uh, his performance in that. But like the, the days of Gary Oldman coming in to win this thing for Mank, those are over. Mank is already... DOA in the race, if you, if you haven't been able to tell. And I know people keep putting out the, the Amanda Seyfried uh, thing. Maybe she gets a nomination, but I'm, I'm telling you, she's not winning an Oscar at all. Um, best Actress, we sort of talked about. Carrie Mulligan, I think won the LA Film Critics uh, stuff. Um, so it's her, it's Viola, and it's Frances McDormand. That, that is a competitive race. And those are three very, very different per- performances. Uh, I'll be very curious to see you know, who, who voters end up going for this season. And supporting actress, I, I probably need to do more homework on, on in that category. I did think it was interesting, though, LA Film Critics uh, giving their award to, their Best Picture Award to Small Acts. So Small Acts is an Emmy play. It's not an Oscar play. There's no changing it. It's all about intention. And, and Steve McQueen has been very forthright in that the intention was to create a TV series that his mother could watch on the BBC. So, you know, while I understand some people would love to see Mangrove submitted in all, uh, you know, feature categories, it's just like it, it, the, they are of a piece. Um, I mean, I considered each movie or each episode or installment in Small X to be a movie. They are on my best movies of, of 2020 list. But I understand, you know, like if... With Little America, let's say, the the Apple series. If those episodes had been an hour or 70 minutes instead of 30 minutes, is that, are those movies now? You know, like, is there a limit? We will accept five, but is eight too much? I feel like when you're a critics organization, I mean, you should be consistent. And that was sort of the, the uproar this week is that LA Film Critics gave Best Picture to Small Axe, but Best Score to Lover's Rock. So it's like either like Lover's Rock is either a part of Small Axe or it's its own thing and should be recognized as such separately. Um, but I feel like when you're a critics organization, there's no rules. You don't have to like adhere to anything. Like you get to do your own thing. You just vote in the room. Um, I would never, I, I'm going to say this and, and I'm sure if someone were to invite me into a critics group, I would accept but I don't think I ever really want to be part of a critics group because I don't think I could stomach like reading like, oh, my critics group gave best picture and whatever to, to this movie. And like, I hated that movie or I hated this performance. Like, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a one man critics group. I don't need to like get together and, or, or call ourselves like the New York Film Critics Circle. The Circle, capital C, capital T and the capital C in circle. The Circle says this. The Circle says that. Give me a fucking break, dude. Like you're, you're, it's just like you're a, a subsect of Rotten Tomatoes. Like you're just, like I don't even understand. If I were to apply to a, a film critics organization, would I apply to the Boston critics? I, here I am in Boston. I review movies, right? Do I submit to LA? I, I'm based I live in LA. My, my official address is in Los Angeles. Like I, I just find the whole critics trying to make themselves more important than they are kind of thing. It's all, it's, you know, I've had enough of it. 
Uh, most to anticipate 2021. We can get into that next uh, next week when we, when I do the top 10 list. That's right. I could have done the top 10 list today, but I still got to see one night in, in Miami, which comes out tomorrow. I missed, tried to watch it this week, and I opened up the screener link and it said it has expired. Then I got to see Soul. So, like, those are two movies that could jump into my top 10. I did not want to make a top 10 without seeing those. Um, all right, let's talk about the trailer. So, okay, we saw... a. Let's talk about the new trailers, and then I'll do the top 20. We got a new trailer this week for The Little Things, which is John Lee Hancock's serial killer boasting not one, not two, but three Oscar winners in Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. I thought this trailer was really good. It, um, it kind of builds to this lasting, this, this final image with Denzel surrounded by, you know, garbage bags. Did Denzel dig up a whole bunch of body parts or something in the desert, which is, you know, the second to last shot, all the holes in the desert? Or did he, I don't know, kill Jared Leto himself and, and put his body parts in plastic bags? Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's going to be very, I'm very curious because they stopped short. And in, in all the press that I've read about this, they stopped short of calling Jared Leto the serial killer. They keep calling him the prime suspect. Which makes, which gives me pause and, and makes me think there's some kind of twist to this. Like, is Denzel chasing himself? Is he the real killer? Is Rami Malek the killer? You know, there's a couple of different uh, people in this cast who, who I could see playing some kind of evil serial killer. Uh, I, I just don't know if it's as easy as it, it was Jared Leto the whole time. Uh, but anyways, I love serial killers. This is a great cast. John Lee Hancock, not... You know, you don't talk about him like a Nolan or a Shyamalan or, or a Scorsese, right? He's not a last name guy. I'm, like, I'm going to see the new Hancock picture. Uh, no, but he's actually a pretty solid director. He doesn't make like a lot of bad stuff. You know, maybe it's kind of middling, but um, I don't know. I'm looking forward to that movie. And it comes out in February on HBO Max. Coming to America got its first trailer this week. I got to tell you. No interest. Zero interest. I'm probably not even going to see it. I don't care. I didn't care about coming to America the first time around. It was a movie that I'd always heard quoted when I was growing up, but I didn't have a big brother to introduce me to it. Uh, yeah, the, the whole wash the royal penis thing, like, because I heard, I heard that all the time. Just don't care. Don't care. I, I like Eddie Murphy just fine. These characters and this storyline is, is not for me. Uh, so, yeah, it, it looked like exactly what I was expecting. Though. And it was good to see Eddie and Arsenio playing all these multiple characters. Like, that was a little fun beat at the end of the trailer. But uh, I don't know. And also, is it it's R-rated? I couldn't even – wasn't the first one R-rated? I, I don't know what is going on with this. Again, I just don't care. I'll get interested in March maybe. Got a trailer for Robin Wright's directorial debut, Land. Sure. Looks like a, a survival movie with a female lead and, and some type of weird romance thing happening with Demi and Bashir. Looked very, very skippable. Palmer actually looked good. The Apple movie with Justin Timberlake, where he's like uh, looking after a gender non conforming little boy. I thought that looked uh, surprisingly interesting and, and heartfelt. And uh, I'm actually looking forward to seeing whether Jer uh, Justin Timberlake can pull that role off. And then we got our first look at footage from Peter Jackson's Get Back, which, you know, had 50 or 60 hours of, of unseen footage of the Beatles. I thought it was pretty cool what we saw. I, I like the tone of it. Um, you know, for me, the Beatles, it's all about the music. I don't really care too much about the personalities. They weren't of my generation. I'm not a Paul or John guy, just, you know, give me the music. So if the music's good, I'm down to check out uh, that Peter Jackson documentary. My, my baby niece must just be slamming her head into the crib uh, in, in the room that we share a wall here. I don't know what is going on in that bedroom right now. Um, okay. Collider. I dropped the top 20 trailers of the year. And that was published this afternoon. I was up super late finishing it because I am a notorious procrastinator. So here's the deal. I ended up going with two Warner Brothers titles for number one and number two. Like Warner Brothers has the best marketing department in the business, or at least they had one until they fired everybody. 
so Blair Rich put these two trailers together. Unfortunately, you know, there's other movies that probably should have been on this list that didn't because Blair Rich and Warner Brothers never figured out a way to sell them. So those movies are Tenet and Wonder Woman 84. I never got the chills from the Tenet trailer the way I should have. And I don't think that, that Warner Brothers had any idea what the hell they were doing with that. Like they pivoted. You've got a great score. Like one of the year's best scores from Ludwig Goransson. And then they pivot to this Travis Scott marketing thing where they're putting this rap song over it. It didn't fit fucking at all. I don't know if this was just because like it's Nolan's first movie with a black lead or something. They, they gave it a rap song on the soundtrack. Like terrible fit. Terrible decision for that final trailer. Wonder Woman 84, ter- just bad marketing. Go, again, go back to the Wonder Woman theme. You have this like iconic theme now from Hans Zimmer. Nobody wants to fucking use it in the, in the trailer. No, just n- not, not good campaigns or not good enough campaigns for either one of those movies. However, the Batman trailer was awesome. You know, uh, I thought Matt Reeves knocked that out of the park. It did a great job of setting up the cat and mouse game between Batman and the Riddler. It introduced, like, the Penguin like, was the talk of this trailer, how unrecognizable Colin Farrell was. You show Catwoman actually being a cat burglar. You set up tension between Batman and the Gotham City Police. Like, And then you have Nirvana, uh, something in the way to top it all off. Great trailer, number one. Judas and the Black Messiah was number two. Another fantastic trailer, driven largely by good music. You cannot put a price on a good trailer song. And that was, uh, I think it was False Prophet by Pusher Music. Track that down on YouTube. Great track. Sound of Metal, beautiful trailer. Like, you know, particularly the way it ends on that close-up of Riz Ahmed, where you just see, you know, so much emotion on his face. Um, Love the music in that trailer. Killing of Two Lovers, absolutely gripping trailer. The movie, you know, I I talked about it a couple weeks ago, it was, it wasn't that it was disappointing. It just, I felt like the title and, and felt a little misled by what ultimately happens in that movie. But the trailer is like a brilliantly constructed piece of art. Let Him Go was number five. Great trailer. Costner, Diane Lane, just, it, it builds to, you know, that perfect moment. I mean, you got Liz, Leslie Manville doing the backhand slap. Like it was uh, uh, probably as good if not better than the movie like fantastic trailer possessor nobody that was six and seven like those movies like look like a blast like i couldn't wait to inject possessor into my eyeballs as soon as i saw that trailer same thing nobody just a wildly entertaining like two or three minutes uh jungle land was nine and that's a great trailer driven by um something real by wave system great song another one of those trailers like uh, Killing of Two Lovers and Sound of Metal and Minari that just critical quotes like matter, you know? And it's not just the quotes that you pick, but the way that they're deployed. Are they, is, is it the right word at the right time? That kind of thing. Um, Jungle Land, did, I thought, did that very, very well. Same thing with Nomadland. Uh, Nomadland was a, a beautiful trailer driven by that gorgeous piano music. And it really just sold the soul of, of this movie. Uh, number 11 was Tiger, the HBO documentary. The, that, that trailer, it, was, it wasn't even the trailer, it was the teaser, driven by this, this monologue from Earl Wood Sr. that is just so impassioned and it summed up their relationship beautifully. I can't wait to see that uh, two-part HBO documentary in January. Minari was, uh, was where am I? One, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, Tiger, 11, Minari. Beautiful trailer, it had heart, it had humor. Uh, 12 was Boy State. Like if that, if that trailer is not as good as it is, I don't see Boy State. Simple as that. I'm just like, oh, teenagers interested in politics. Like, I don't care. It was the circus atmosphere of it and, and the way that it ends and, and you know, what they had to say about politicians. And it, it was a, a very uh, impressive trailer, I thought, for a documentary. 13, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, driven by Sharon Bonnet and 17, song which is a great song all on its own um promising young woman was 15 you know and this trailer i didn't i don't know if they've made a great trailer yet for promising young woman but i love that the trailer makes you feel like if you don't see this movie you're going to be missing out on on a big important conversation 
Um, and, and very few movies, like you could say that about a lot of movies, but very few movies I think could advertise that. And this is one that actually gets away with it. Um, Candyman was 16. You know, I, I didn't use the animated black and white prologue. That is part of the movie. It's not a trailer, uh, but, but effective. So the next two were, were Netflix movies, Devil All the Time and Hillbilly Elegy. I, you know, say what you will about Hillbilly Elegy, the movie. I thought the trailer was great. It made me well up with emotion a, a few different times. And Devil All the Time, the way that that builds after introducing like the ensemble, the, the, the music's great. It's all about ratcheting up that tension for that, that uh, big, you know, climax at the end before your title pops up. 18 was Our Friend. Uh, with Casey Affleck and then Jason Siegel, where Dakota Johnson gets cancer. I mean, that, that, I just found that very, very moving. 19 was Unhinged, which, you know, let you know right off the bat or, or by the end of the trailer, when the tractor trailer goes through the cop, the cop car, like it, this movie was not fucking around. And it let you know exactly what kind of movie it was. And then 20 was Dune, which, you know, I thought was a pretty good trailer. It, it creates this world that has a lot of characters to introduce. Um, it had a, a tricky job. Um, and yeah, some other ones I like this year, Shadow in the Cloud, Spiral from the Book of Saw. It's, it's, we've seen, you know, that trailer came out 10 months ago. The Green Knight, I thought was a good teaser. The French Dispatch, The Mauritanian, Mope, The Truffle Hunters, that documentary, Run, Fat Man, The Shadow of Violence. Those were my honorable mentions. That was, uh, you know, the, the, the best trailers of the year. Uh, as far as reviews this week, I saw a few different movies, um, and one is one actually pertains to um, a mailbag thing that I got. But uh, I, I, I watched the final two Small Axe titles, Mangrove and Red, White, and Blue. Here's my hot take for Small Axe. Red, White, and Blue was actually the best movie in this, you know, uh, in this series. Um, this is the one with John Boyega as uh, Le Leroy Logan, I want to say. Yeah. He is a, you know, basically his, his father is beaten, right, by, by police. And so then years later, John Boyega decides to join the force. And his father is pissed at him. His father is like, you know, these guys took me off the street for doing nothing. They beat the shit out of me. How can you go join their team? And Boyega's like, you know, the only way that I'm going to affect change is from the inside. And, you know, he gets harassed, like people call him the N-word. Uh, I, I just thought it was very, a very, very effective 80 minutes with a great, you know, final scene between father and son. That, to me, just felt like, I don't want to say like the most real story, because I know uh, every one of these stories is based on a true story, except for Leverage Rock. Um, but that was just the one that, that really hit me emotionally. Mangrove was very good, and it was much better than Trial of the Chicago 7. But it didn't hit me emotionally the way that Red, White, and Blue did. Uh, so I, I go Red, White, and Blue, Mangrove, Leverts Rock, Education, and Alex Weedle <coughs> when it comes to the Small Axe titles. Um, and John Boyega, though, was, was absolutely fantastic. Like, I hope he gets an Emmy, an Emmy nomination next year. I watched Julia Hart's crime drama, I'm Your Woman. I thought that was pretty good. I actually thought she did a, a solid job directing that. Rachel Brosnahan was good. The supporting cast was solid. Check out I'm Your Woman on Amazon. I watched Fatal with Hilary Swank and Michael Ely, which I suppose was a guilty pleasure. You know, it, it had enough to keep me entertained. It, it, it got a little ludicrous, and I'm not sure you'll, you'll quite see where this movie is going. Um, but Hillary Swanks, man, she's still got it. I think she's looking good. I don't know. She's got to be in her 40s or something. Uh, yeah, like Hillary, Hillary Swank. Th th this is like the, the right kind of role for her at this point in her career. This was a fun little B-movie villain turn. You're not quite sure what she's capable of. Uh, and then I watched The Midnight Sky. And that was the, the question that I got from Mailbag, you know, the, the reader was just like, what the hell did I just watch? Like, what? what? Uh, and that is basically how I felt as well. There were a couple of interesting scenes in this. There's a scene with Tiffany Boone uh, where basically she has a cut in zero gravity. And, and, you know, we've all seen you know astronauts drinking Tang or little water globules floating in these space movies. 
It's interesting when it's blood. Um, so again, there, there are moments here, but basically this, the, the, the two different halves of this movie never connect. Like it's just Clooney's cutting back and forth from, you know, earth to space. And it's this, the space stuff is not good. Like you just don't care about any of the characters. They all have one personality trait. Uh, they just don't feel like real people, nor are you invested in their, their journey or their survival. You know, meanwhile, this, this movie, I mean, I have to warn you, it's, it's a twist movie. There's a twist to it. I don't think that the twist is that difficult to figure out. I can't say I necessarily figured it out, but I also wasn't really trying because I didn't really care. Uh, yeah, there's just, this is a whiff. I don't think George Clooney is a really good director. He started out hot with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Good Night and Good Luck. But when you look at some of these movies, man, I mean, I, I guess I like Ides of March. Uh, but you know, Weatherheads and Suburbicon. Like, what are these fucking movies, dude? I don't know why he wanted to make Midnight Sky or why anyone would want to watch it around the holidays. Like, it was depressing and grim and, uh, yeah, just not a lot of fun. So, thumbs down on Midnight Sky. Uh, Amon Pooney asks, if you have time for Mailbag, I'd like to get your thoughts on who should be the next Bond. Could Robert Pattinson feasibly be Bond after the Batman? I hope not. I don't think uh, Pattinson would make a a terribly good um, Bond. Let's see if he makes a good Batman first. I don't think it's going to be Tom Hardy. I mean, Fastbender's getting a little too old. I really, I still like Dan Stevens. I would still be down to see Dan Stevens tackle Bond. You know, I think Sam Hewen is, is a possibility. Um, I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to kind of think about that. But as of right now, I want to say Dan Stevens. Slappy White asks, why do you suppose Neil Blomkamp is in movie jail? Even Uva Bull has directed more movies, and Blomkamp was nominated for, for multiple Oscars. I don't know if Neil Blomkamp is in movie jail. Um, I mean, he, the guy seems like he, he continues to make stuff you know via his his own independent studio they are more short films and, and that kind of thing uh i mean he was supposed to get going on inferno right with with taylor kitsch i want to say and i think the pen that, that project was like a victim of the pandemic um so you know part of it has been like bad luck like he was developing an alien movie and then fox sold to disney right so part of it has been bad luck part of it is that I guess Chappie just really did not do very well, even though I, I like Chappie. I, I might even like Chappie more than District 9. Um, I also don't know if Neil Blomkamp wants it. I don't know if he wants to, you know, like the guy comes from South Africa. Like, is, is that, he wants to be a filmmaker because he want to be like a movie director for hire in Hollywood. I don't know if that, if that's like the vibe that I, I get from him. Um, but I'm sure he will, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. I'm sure he will find a, a way to to bounce back. Uh, is there anything else that I want to talk about? I don't think so. That'll do it. Let me just check the email, make sure we didn't get any last minute mailbag questions or any breaking news. Do, 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 do. Nope, not really. Uh, all right, then. Well. I guess that'll do it for the Snyder Cut. We're not done in 2020. We're not calling it a year. I will be back on December 31st. That is coming into the office. We're going to do a blowout end of the year show. Maybe I'll even get a guest or two. Let's see if I can get Justin Kroll to do his top 10 list or something. Um, but I will have my top 10 list uh, in, in place by then. I want to thank you all, though, for, for watching as, as long as you have. I mean, this is that episode, what, 64? Um, have a wonderful, uh, a Merry Christmas, a happy holiday, whatever you celebrate. Have a, a great New Year's Eve if you're too busy next week to catch the show. Uh, thoughts and prayers go out to my buddy Dave McNary, the, the legendary variety film reporter, uh, is in the hospital. Um, so I, I wish him a swift recovery. I know if anybody can make one, it is Dave. But I learned a lot from Dave. Uh, I don't think I would be where I am without... Uh, 
gleaning some some vital Hollywood knowledge from Dave McNary and uh, just, the, just the sweetest, nicest guy. Love playing uh, basketball with him. And, and I hope, you know, when I'm back in LA and, and he's made a full recovery, we can do that again. Uh, so Dave, love you, thinking of you and everybody else out there. Season's greetings, stay safe, have some eggnog, find a mistletoe, and I will see you next Thursday after the holiday. Take care, guys.